How resilient is populism at the ballot box? The Czech Republic held parliamentary elections this past week, and Prime Minister Andrej Babiš faced a test. He was one of the country's richest people, even before he was elected, and the Pandora Papers revealed just before the elections that he secretly owned a luxury chateau on the French Riviera through a shell company. The European Union also found him to have a conflict of interest when his company, Agrofert, received subsidies from the EU. In recent years, hundreds of thousands of Czechs have protested against his government. Yet his ANO, or YES, party has remained popular, and the right generally remained more successful in the elections than the, than the left. The Social Democrats and Communists failed to overcome the 5% hurdle and are out of the new parliament entirely. Do the recent elections foretell the continued resilience of populism in Europe? Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Today, we're fortunate to have with us uh, to discuss the recent elections in the Czech Republic, um, Petra Guasti an associate professor of democratic theory at the Faculty of Social Sciences at Charles University in Prague. She's also been a fellow of the Goethe University in Frankfurt uh, at the Johannes Gutenberg University in Mainz in Germany and at the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation at the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. She serves as an expert for the Bertelsmann Transformation Index, VDEM, and Nations in Transit with Freedom House. And she holds two doctorates, one in political science from the University of Bremen uh, in northern Germany and another in political science, sociology from uh, Charles University, where she continues to teach. Welcome to International Horizons, Petra Glasti. Thank you, John, for having me. Great to have you with us. So for those who are perhaps less familiar with what's going on in the Czech Republic, maybe you could briefly set the stage about how we got to this moment. What are some of the broad developments in history since the end of socialism in 1989 and what happened in these recent elections? Yes, uh, thank you for the question. So I will start with uh, with the like broad sweeps of history. So I think uh, your listeners will know about the so-called Velvet Divorce of Czechoslovakia at the end of 1990, uh, 1992, then 1999, entry into NATO, 2004, Czech Republic became a member member of the EU. Domestically and more recently, I think the most important turning point was the Great Recession. After that, uh, the Czech party system became very fluid and increasingly fragmented. It also brought the rise and fall of parties, the fall of established parties or significant decline, and the rise of populist and anti-system parties. Important aspect of Czech politics in that period was the presence of permanent opposition on both sides of the political spectrum. 
communists, unreformed communists on the left, and the radical and the radical right on the right side of the spectrum. This has pushed parties to cooperation while preventing ideologically coherent governing coalitions. In 2013, we saw the rise of technocratic populism. So that was a that was the Anno project or yes of Andrei Babish, a business guy who came uh, and promised to run the state as a firm. He was a successful businessman, and his uh, his idea was a was a quite smart one. So by by promising to run the state as a firm, he alluded to technocratic uh, to technocratic expertise. And that allowed him to transcend the left and the right divide. So in a way to appeal to voters on both sides of the spectrum. And he remained, uh, he remained in govern, uh, in government as a prime minister. He's still a prime minister, but should be resigning, uh, soonish after losing, losing the elections. So, uh, what happened in the Czech Republic? We had general elections, uh, this past weekend and it brought a huge change. So uh, the I would say the changes were three. First, perhaps uh, mentioning the losers. So after 100 years, the Czech communists have departed uh, departed the Czech parliament. Um, also, did not make it across the five percent threshold. Uh, threshold were the social democrats. The third losers, I think, in a way, is the prime minister's Anno who has uh, who has finished second and will have uh, will have 72 mandates in the in the new chamber of deputies who also weakened was the radical right which uh, however made it into the parliament and now to the winners this was the two democratic uh, coalitions the together coalition with 71 uh, 71 votes and the winner of the election this is the conservative coalition of three parties and the liberal coalition of pirates and mayors. Uh, and these five parties or two coalitions are now uh, building the new government and they have a, for Czech, uh, for Czech Republic, a very comfortable majority of 108 seats in the 200 seat parliament. So to what do you attribute the uh, fact that the left seems to have been left completely out in the cold and the right seems to have really consolidated its power, even though uh, uh, Babish seems in many ways rather unpopular? Well, uh, I think that uh, that Babish in a way became uh, the victim of his own success. I mean, his voters were formerly the voters of both communists and social democrats. He represents uh, a very strong block of, uh, especially composed of seniors. He increased, uh, I mean, that is the interesting thing from how do technocratic populists then govern, because they are neither left nor right. And this is perhaps best uh, best exemplified. So on one hand, Babish was the first one who increased significantly the minimum wage, but also the pensions. On the other hand, he also cut taxes. So he is kind of trying to, he has something for everybody. But uh, but that's where the voters uh, that's where the voters are. Another important aspect is to say that about uh, because of the threshold and the new new electoral uh, new electoral formula, 
uh, about 20% of the votes finished below the threshold. And, and these were mostly mostly the votes of the fragmented left-wing parties. The communists have been declining for a long, uh, for a long time. And uh, so now you could say that uh, there are more like center-left parties only present. But I think that will be the big task for the next four years. If the left can, uh, can uh, kind of form a, a block or a coalition and find a new way to appeal to the voters because they really need representation. And a final point I want to say, I think that for a long, for at least the last past 10 years, the left-wing parties mostly focused on kind of that's what allowed Babish to, to, to get in, to get a foot in, because they reduced their agenda to promising and delivering, uh, let's say, more like uh, on welfare, on welfare issues and outbidding each other, like we are going to increase the pensions by this and we by this. And they actually didn't address, uh, didn't address important, uh, important social issues. And I think that would be that would be important because currently, uh, like issues about the future, about climate change, about housing, they are not present. Uh, they are not present in in the Czech Parliament. Well, this is interesting because it seems to me that typically populism uh, thrives where immigration is an issue, and I don't think you've mentioned that as a, as an issue at all. Uh, so, could you explain? Is that you know in fact an issue that is exploited by the sort of right populists, or is it really not an issue? Uh, well, that that is a great question, and how shall I answer? So. Of course, migration, uh, migration, and especially uh, especially immigration, uh, has been an issue for at least since uh, 2015 in the Czech Republic, and that was the most important issue with which Andrei Babiš tried in this current in this year's campaign to like scare the voters. It was kind of project fear, like only I can defend you from the migrants, but. The voters didn't buy it because there are no migrants. So there, there are no big migration streams. Czech Republic for, for the, for migrants and asylum seekers. Czech Republic is not, it's more a transition country, which they just want to, to, to go through and get to the, get to the West. And uh, on the other hand, it's also important to, to say that Czech Republic has about one million, uh, one million migrant workers, especially from majority from Ukraine, which uh, are not taking jobs from, from Czechs and are generally if not accepted, then tolerated. Their presence is there. Companies are seeking them because they just have uh, uh, for 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 lower skilled uh, jobs, which uh, which are not attractive to the people. But uh, the turn of the anti-immigration rhetoric kind of painted this picture of a of a of a Muslim Muslim refugee, which will which will come and take over the country, and uh, and it didn't work because there are no Muslim refugees. So eventually, this has to, like, kind of the issue extinguished, uh, extinguish itself. And and it's not an issue because uh, migrants, asylum seekers, refugees are not really interested. See, not really to be interested in staying in the Czech Republic is what you're saying. I mean, it seems a little odd given that it's a 
you know, historically relatively tolerant place. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I don't know that it has a great uh, long experience with Islam, but, uh, you know, it's a relatively prosperous place as Eastern Europe goes uh, as well. I think uh, I think the, this is one of the major paradoxes. So actually, I was puzzled by it. Uh, I am puzzled by it, uh, actually, since the migration crisis. And it kind of shows you how important the supply side uh, is in anti-immigration. Uh, in, um, so even if there was any, any immigration of Muslims in 2015, 2016, in this big migration wave across Europe, this wouldn't have been the first time. The first, uh, first Muslims immigrated during the Balkan Wars in the, in the late, uh, in the late 90s. And they generally integrated, integrated very well into the society, mostly remained, only a small majority returned. And I went back to the newspapers in 2016, to the newspapers from 90s, and it was not an issue. And some of the politicians were still the same by 2015 and 16, and their tone completely, completely changed. So I think there is a lot of like, um, learning among the, among the populace, but it has its limits if you have nothing to, to base it on. And finally, I would like to say that, uh, that this summer, especially with the, or more, more recently with the, with the, Afghanistan and Afghan refugees, Czech Republic brought, uh, brought uh, its interpreters and people which were helping uh, the Czech, uh, Czech military in Afghanistan. And this has, this move has been broadly supported by the population and uh, was regarded as our responsibility to people who, who helped. So they were, uh, they were resettled and, uh, but it still is going to, that's interesting. The government gave them the choice. Do you want to stay here? Or, or shall we organize move to another Western European country? I think it's also because you don't have the migrants are going where they have like a community they could rely on to start. And as it's not there in the Czech Republic, it would be very difficult without any assistance, without any networks. And the neighboring countries, uh, either in Scandinavia, Germany or more uh, further away in Scandinavia, that would be more the, the places where, where they're trying to get. I mean, it's very interesting, uh, and I don't want to spend all our time talking about this, but, I mean, the other group that uh, always comes to mind in this part of the world is the Roma. Mm-hmm. And there was, of course, always a lot of concern after the end of communism that, you know, the Roma populations, you know, were in some places indeed mistreated, but that in any case they were not going to be, uh, you know, treated particularly well. Uh, has that been an issue? Is it a popular, an issue that the populists exploit? They do, but it uh, more masquerades as, uh, as, uh, targeting, like, welfare parasites. So they wouldn't call, uh, they wouldn't call out Roma, they would call people who are unemployed by choice, who are, uh, who are uh, living off the welfare handouts and so on. But the, it's not exploited by the radical right because this is like the baseline. Even the mainstream right is saying that, that, but they will not call, they will not call Roma out. They will frame it more broadly as a, in a non-racial 
in non-racial terms, although everybody knows uh, that it's mostly that it's kind of uh, a label uh, label they are using for Roma. And although Roma are still facing uh, facing huge issues uh, in employment, it's much harder for them to gain employment. It's easier to lose it. They face issues in trying to get uh, trying to uh, get housing, public housing, etc. So, so the Roma discrimination continues. There are organizations which are trying to trying to deal with it, but the issue is not owned by the by the radical right because the baseline kind of is yeah the Roma are living off the state uh, of the generosity uh, generosity of the state and in fact uh, recently uh, the actually still under the Babish government they made some rules stricter uh, stricter on uh, on on welfare on welfare so to kind of make it harder make it harder to misuse them but it's never never presented as targeting this group specifically. So it can, I see. Yeah. I see. I see. So let's turn to an, an issue that uh, came up right before the election and that might have been thought to you know be rather damaging. And of course, it's the revelation about the, the chateau on the French Riviera uh, that was held for uh, Babish by this shell company. Uh, and of course, you know, the Pandora Papers revelations have revealed something that, you know, in some sense, I suppose, kind of goes without saying that, you know, the very wealthy have ways of hiding their wealth and, uh, you know, engaging in corruption, tax avoidance, etc. Um, so, you know, one might imagine and, and combined with the, you know, sort of revelations from the EU or criticisms from the EU about his uh, conflicts of interest with regard to subsidies to his uh, company. Um, you know, all of this might have, uh, you know, blown up very badly and, uh, you know, perhaps knocked him, uh, knocked him out. But that does not seem to have happened. So what, how do you explain that? Well, I... Uh Unlike uh, unlike some uh, Western journalists, I don't believe that uh, that the media reporting on Pandora Papers have played a major role in the in the Czech uh, in the Czech general elections in 2021. Of course, uh, of course, uh, uh, some uh, member of the parliament for the Pirate Party tried to go to France and kind of in a Navalny style video on YouTube. About the about the about the properties. I'm I'm sorry to report that the chateau it's actually a villa, so that was a little disappointment, uh, if uh, we may call it like that. But to speak more seriously, I think uh, that it's really hard that uh, that it, that this corruption corruption issues uh, are difficult to leverage in elections. So for the voters of Anno and the seniors, they voted with their wallet. They either don't care or don't believe that this is the case. They believe the prime minister when he says that the media is against him. Uh, his own media don't report on it. So, so kind of he controls what, what information, what information they consume. But even if they knew, they kind of prize it in. Yeah, politicians steal, but uh, the other ones who who were who were stealing or corrupt didn't increase our pensions, and he did. So kind of that would be the voting with their wallet. 
I think the voters of the two opposing blocs, uh, the democratic opposition, they already knew. They already know that he's misusing uh, the EU, the EU subsidies, that he, that his companies have, uh, that his success was not his uh, business genius, but, uh, but his ability to exploit state and EU ups, uh, subsidies so that he's basically ruling over uh, a castle made of sand and uh, end of the subsidies. So if you would t- take the subsidies out of it, it would kind of all implode. And finally, the voters of the radical right, I mean, they perhaps believed it, but they already believe everybody, all politicians, uh, all politicians and all politics is corrupt. So I think in this kind of, uh, in this atmosphere, the Pandora Papers kind of cemented in the people's position of, and if anything, perhaps could influence uh, could influence turnout but uh, but i don't think so right so i mean ano this party that whose name is simply yes seems to represent uh you know a broader trend of parties that are sort of anti political parties i mean i think of uh in italy forza italia which simply means go italy uh manuel macron's uh La République en marche, which just means, you know, the Republic on its way or something like that. Um, and, you know, Anno sounds like a similarly kind of techno populist, if you like, kind of name that really, you know, says we don't have really an ideology. We're just here to get things done. So is that, uh, you know, do you see that concept of techno populism, which we've had, you know, authors, Christopher, uh, Carlo and Venizzi uh, talk about here on the podcast, um, you know, as a kind of important yeah, type uh, of Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you for this, uh, for this question. And I'm, uh, I have to say I'm a huge fan of uh, Professor Invertini Azzetti and Chris Bickerton and their new book on technopopulism. So I think that uh, technopopulism, in a way, is a response to the people's Disenchantment with uh, with ideologies, with the politics of the left, uh, left and of the right, but also uh, also with uh, the globalization, which is kind of pushing, reducing the space of the government where government can can actually make some decisions that influence people's uh, people's life. Look, Czech government has. Uh, a relatively little control over over Amazon, which now uh, has a huge new plant in the on the border with Germany, which actually only serves Germany. So Amazon doesn't send to the Czech Republic, but it's all packaged in Czech Republic with Czech uh, workers working for Czech salaries. But uh, of course, the Czech government has uh, beyond uh, beyond uh, some labor uh, labor rules has a little control over the global capital, and that's uh, the case for most governments around the world. I mean, what technocrat? Uh, I think it's uh, important to distinguish here that these parties uh, they come. The technocratic element is not necessarily how they govern; it's how they come to power. So it uh, is combining uh, the the appeal of technocracy and the appeal of uh, the appeal of uh, populism. It is always connected with a kind of a strong person. You mentioned Emmanuel Macron. We could mention also also Silvio Berlusconi of Italy, which I think was the major major figure in this. Uh, 
What's interesting is that technocratic populism may be relatively new in Europe, but it has existed in Latin America for for a lot of time. And exactly this kind of appeal of good governance that's that's what people what people mostly want. So this is what the promise is in the election. Andrei Babish summarized it in promising to run the state as a firm, which also wasn't original because Berlusconi already promised that before. And uh, but I think that then they get plagued with this hubris of uh, of corruption, uh, of uh, of many many uh, many many issues. And I think what's important in government is uh, that this appeal to experts is an attempt to avoid accountability for decisions. So kind of hiding behind the facades of experts. But then we need to, uh, to ask the questions, how were these experts selected? Why do they stay? Which expert solutions were not uh, not included, etc., etc.? And this is something which... Uh, the Czech Constitutional Court addressed when it said that some of the pandemic measures uh, the government of Andrei Babiš adopted are in breach of the constitution. And there was a very interesting uh, passage in the in the decision, which was that the government bears political responsibility even if it relies on experts for uh, for advice and expertise. But the responsibility is political and it remains political. It cannot be shifted on experts. It remains with the elected, elected officials. And I think this is, uh, this is kind of the limit of, uh, of the, of the expertise. And it remains to be seen whether and how we assess whether Andre Babish and Emmanuel Macron really try uh, run the state as a firm. I believe that democratic states are not firms because citizens are not stakeholders. And what I find the most worrying in this is this kind of um, telling the people that uh, once they give the vote to this technocratic populist in the elections, they can just uh, relax because they will only assemble at the next uh, at the next shareholder meeting. So the elections kind of turn into the shareholder meetings, but we are not shareholders. We want to hold our elected officials or we should want to hold our elected officials accountable, not just once in four years at the ballot box, but throughout. Right. So, I mean, these trends and also the fact that the Communist Party, as you mentioned, for the first time in, I guess, 100 years, you said, mm-hmm. uh, has been kept entirely out of the uh, Czech parliament. Uh, that seems to me, uh, you know, a kind of major milestone. Um, you know, how much of the politics of the Czech Republic today are product of the kind of socialist era, or, we, or, or is the era of transition now definitively over? Uh, thank you, John. This is, a, this is another great question. And I have to admit that I've been asking myself for some time whether post-communism ever ends. You know, is it like a temporary period or is it like a, is it a marker which, uh, which remains for a long time? And I, I quite agree with Mark Twain, who said that history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. But I believe that Czech politics and the challenges it's facing today are now closer to the contemporary challenges in Europe and in the United States. And I think that with almost 20% of the votes below, below the 5% threshold, 
if the forthcoming government, uh, government will not seek to represent the losers of transformation and globalization, we could see the return of illiberalism in the next elections. And I think this is somehow, I would like uh, to build a bridge for your readers. I think this is the same challenge United States is facing, that if this government, if the Biden presidency does not succeed, there will be it will be much harder, if not impossible, to to steer clear of the illiberal the illiberals who have uh, who have uh, promised cure and have have the diagnosis. Well, I'm, I'm sure that's right, uh, and obviously, in that sense, we're all cheering for for Joe Biden right now. Um, but I wanted to sort of finally uh, widen out the lens a little bit and look at the Czech Republic from a kind of comparative perspective in comparison with, you know, its neighboring countries. Um, you know, when we were getting ready for this, you said some interesting things about it. I mean, my, my image of the Czech Republic has always been that it kind of punches above its weight, as we say. Uh, it's a pretty small place, but you know, what comes out of there generally has a pretty good uh, reputation. And of course, you know, Franz Kafka, uh, but on the political side, Tomas Mazarik, and of course, most famously, most recently, uh, Václav Havel. And, um, you know, I wonder what you would say about, you know, the sensibilities of the Czechs and how they differ from the Poles and the Hungarians and perhaps the Austrians that surround them. Yeah, thank you. I uh so I would say uh I would say yes, it's a it's a strange country uh and I think it owes a lot to its geography. And so when we were discussing I was saying, you know, uh, Masaryk more than 100 uh, 100 years ago wrote an essay which was discussing where does the country belong if it's to the west or to the east and we have still not uh, definitely answered the question i mean i would like it to be i would like it to be in the west masaryk saw it but masaryk had another proposal and he saw the importance of uh, like a belt of democratic countries going from the balkans to the baltics and seeing them as kind of uh, as kind of uh, insurance against the war that of course didn't work out in the second world war we know that uh, we know that now and so i think in this uh, we are still we are still stuck there i think that in many ways the major difference between uh, between czech republic on one hand and poland and hungary on the other is that the czech uh, institutions remain resilient. So it's not that Andrei Babish didn't try. He even succeeded in uh, awarding himself the subsidies and remaining, remain, uh, retain impunity. But, uh, but he did not, I mean, he was trying to push against the guardrails as hard as he could, but he, they held. And I think this is really, this is really a test to, to those uh, scholars and uh, and constitutional lawyers that have written the Czech constitution that the that the Czech uh, Czech parliament has the upper chamber which has turned important that the constitutional court has held and that uh, that it remained nonpartisan and that it even in the pandemic was calling on the government that you cannot put the health of the people over the health of the democracy 
and calling for responsibility. So I think this is uh, this is really important. And uh, and perhaps interestingly, we seem to think in political science about fragmentation as something bad. But if you are looking at Hungary and Poland on one hand and Czech Republic on the other, perhaps it was the fragmentation which have prevented the total control by one leader. And the biggest difference, I would say, between between Viktor Orban of Hungary, Andrei Babiš of Czech Republic and, uh, and Jaroslav Kaczynski of Poland is that only Viktor Orban is governing with a constitutional majority that uh, in Poland they have a majority but coalition government. Now the coalition is a bit, bit fragmenting. But Andrei Babiš had a minority government, and so that's why he couldn't change anything about the guardrails. That, so in a way, uh, fragmentation can be a blessing in disguise, as it turned out in the, in the Czech Republic. And I think also... This nativism, uh, this nativism, which we see a lot in uh, in Hungary and Poland, did not resonate with large enough group in Czech Republic. Uh, last week, uh, Prime Minister Babiš even invited Viktor Orban to uh, to one election rally, and everybody was just like, "This is what you are like. Are you admitting that this is where you want us to go? You think that this is appealing to us?" So that kind of was very interesting that he played his cards like this and it didn't uh, it didn't work out. And finally, I would be remiss not to mention the strength of the Czech civil society, which has been absolutely crucial. A group formed in 2018 called Million Moments for Democracy has in 2019 organized the largest uh, protest since 1989 that kind of brings us to the Velvet Revolution. So that was the first time since Velvet Revolution that at Prague, Letna Square, 300,000 people gathered and they gathered for the same reason in 2019, like in, uh, like in 1989 for democracy and the rule of law. And it was this group, uh, which organized through, not just in Prague, but throughout the country and called on the fragmented democratic coalition to build, to, fragmented democratic parties, which were five at that time, telling them you have to build coalitions. We are going to support you, but you cannot run each by yourself. You have to come together. And I think they succeeded in that, on like pushing on the parties to form these coalition, to overcome personal and policy differences and understand that when democracy is at stake, you have to come together. And uh, finally, in, uh, now in 2021, they run for the first time a grassroots campaign. I would call it the U.S. style grassroots campaign throughout the country. And I think that it's especially thanks to them that the turnout uh, increased by almost 5%. So I think that it's the guardrails that are holding and civil society, which is not willing to give up, that makes Czech Republic uh, resilient to the illiberals who are trying to change it. It was a very interesting analysis that makes my kind of comment about Czech exceptionalism that much more <laughs> appropriate, I think, because uh, it sounds sort of like a Tocquevillian analysis of Czech democracy. 
Um, and of course, as you know, the, you know, founding father's insight was precisely what you were saying that, you know, the more difficult you make it to actually do anything, the, you know, the easier it is to resist power grabs and, uh, unitary power and that sort of thing. And that's what they were trying to get away from. I mean, it's also interesting to me, uh, you know, relative to what's going on in South Africa, where, uh, you know, I can recall conversations with people who, have spent their whole lives working on South Africa and, you know, telling me that, you know, they saw South Africa as not likely to go the Zimbabwean route. Uh, and that had to do, they thought, with a kind of respect for the rule of law. I don't know about civil society so much, but a kind of respect for institutions that you're pointing to. Uh, now, I think it's unfortunately not so clear that this is really the case in South Africa, but <clears throat> time will tell. But in any case, uh, I want to say thanks very much for a fascinating conversation. Um, that's it for today's episode. I want to thank Petra Guasti for sharing her insights about the recent Czech elections and Czech democracy and civil society more generally. Uh, remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Meryl Sovner for her help putting this episode together and Christo Voinov for his technical assistance. And I want to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song, International Horizons, as the, as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us, and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons.